Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Our study this morning will be focused upon the last verses of this transitional chapter. Hebrews chapter 10 comes, uh, at least the second part of Hebrews 10, comes as a transition from all that is true about the superior, sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then how we ought to live in light of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is doing. So it's really a transition, and you will recall, probably most of you are familiar with Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, and that's the result of people dependent upon God's provision of salvation in Christ. And so this is a transition, the last part of chapter 10 uh, into chapter 11. Really, if handled uh, as it was intended in this sermon, this Christ-centered sermon, we would really study verses 19 through 39 in one, uh, one lump sum, if you will. Uh, but because of time, uh, we are going to have that split. And so today I start with verse 26. But don't forget the context. Last week we studied uh, the importance of the corporate life of the church in helping us to persevere. We are to draw near to God. We are to hold fast to our confession in Christ. Uh, we are also supposed to stir one another up in love and good works, not forsaking the assembling together of the saints. This is about the corporate church and the church's life together. And now comes this sober warning, but necessary warning. Hear God's word, Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of the judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that your, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for your justice, for your severity. Lord, I pray that you would motivate us by the full balance of your word to persevere in the faith, that is, to continue on trusting in the Lord Jesus. And I pray that your people would stand out as a light in this culture, in this world, that people would be drawn to the sufficient, superior Savior we have, and that real change would happen in our day. 
pray this according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. What are you afraid of? Everyone experiences fear at some level. The technical definition of fear is the feeling of agitation and anxiety caused by the presence of or imminence of danger, at least the perception of that. Used synonymously with uh, the term fear, fright, dread, terror, horror, panic, alarm, dismay, consternation, trepidation. What are you afraid of? What do you fear? You know, there are some shaping influences that happen in people's lives that contribute to whatever it is that they fear. There are some who fear the family pets. Have you ever seen a child who's afraid of someone's dog? How about the fear of flying? I know people that will not get on an airplane. They'll travel across the country in a bus before they'll get on an airplane. Uh, the fear of germs, people that are just constantly nervous about getting sick. The fear of sickness, perhaps some long debilitating sickness. Uh, there are all kinds of fears. I'm sure you, can ha you have one in your mind. It may be rational or it may be contrived, that is not based on reality. Whatever the case, it has a gripping effect on us, fear. But what about God? When I ask you, do you fear God, what comes up in your soul? I have to admit to you that in today's day, I feel a little bit uncomfortable when I talk about the fear of God. Because it has been so passed over largely by the modern evangelical church. It's very difficult to find much in the way of teaching on the subject of the fear of God, more deeply, his justice and his severity. It's usually passed over. It may be acknowledged slightly, but always to the side of grace and love do we focus most of our attention. And for good reason. These are important, essential elements of our understanding and appreciating Christ and God and what he has done for us. But would we not also say that the full balance, the whole counsel of Scripture, needs to be brought to bear so that we can better understand grace and love, and that would be the severity, the justice, the holiness, the glory of God. Now yesterday I read, I picked up a newspaper because I wanted to see how the article for our high school came out. You, you know, you say a lot in an interview and you wonder what they capture, and the lady that did the interview did a great job capturing what was said. I then flipped over to the faith page which I know better, but I do it anyways. I flipped over to the faith page and then looked through it. And my wife walked by several times, checking my attitude about it, and I appreciated that. But I wrote down all the sermon titles that are being preached today. And I picked only evangelical churches, although I have to admit, one of the Unity churches had an interesting title, Is Your Personal Will Aligned with the Will of God? I thought that was an interesting one, and actually probably meatier than some of the other subjects I saw. And I want to say when I mention these, I don't mean to criticize them by virtue of their titles at all. I'm terrible at coming up with titles for sermons. And, and they're all worthy subjects that the Bible definitely addresses. But it did give you a flavor or a sense of kind of the spirit of the day in the church. Listen to some of the titles of the sermons. Start Your Engine. God in the Middle of the Mess. Blessings Available for You from God. The Power of Now. Trust the Mystery. Come to a God oasis. The courage to risk. Real faith when it really counts. These are all different titles now. Going where God leads. Savers, weepers, users, keepers. A holy boldness. A sobering faith. Interrogating God. Why do bad things happen to good people? Journey of hope. The footsteps of the pilgrims. Your talents full of years and full of life. Do not worry. Giving too much or too little to God. 
living abundantly, celebrating women in ministry, a sermon in multiple voices. And in that one, there was four different ladies who would get up and speak to this issue. Secrets to overcoming obstacles to prayer. These are all the listed titles of sermons. And obviously, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that they're unbiblical. They're probably addressed well by many of uh, the preachers and teachers who address them and are faithful to the text. But what I notice, and I think this is pretty representative of the state of the American evangelical church today, if you look at all the faith pages of all the papers, most of them seem to be geared towards whatever it is uh, the preacher or the church thinks the people want to have addressed. They may want a biblical address, so I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying that there was a stark lack of expositional focus, and there was also a stark lack of the justice and severity of God in all these represented sermon titles. And I think it's fair to say that that light has almost all but gone out in the American evangelical church. It's just not popular. In the churches that do preach expositionally and go through and have to come up to a text like this, I can't just skip over Hebrews 10. I mean, I suppose I can, but I could run and I couldn't hide. I think that there maybe is just almost a sheepishness about it because we know what people think about negativity. And we just, we don't like that. Well, I really have come to believe that this may be the key, at least for evangelicals who long to see a a spiritual awakening in the church, this may be the key, a return to the whole counsel of God. I don't mean an imbalance. I think the scripture speaks more of the grace and love and mercy of God than the scripture speaks of the severity and justice of God. Not a whole lot more, but more. Because against the backdrop of the justice and severity of God and his glory and his holiness, Grace is all the brighter and better understood. In fact, I would argue that you can only fully understand grace when you understand the severity of God. Behold the kindness and severity of God, Paul says in the book of Romans. I think a return to this, brothers and sisters, is what is needed. I think we need the doctrines of grace proclaimed. But the doctrines of grace are only really understood. Grace is only truly grasped when we recognize God's zealousness for his glory and justice that has to be upheld. That's the, really the beauty of this text and what is so severely lacking today in our day. John MacArthur has this perspective on it, and it's a longer quote than I would usually mention, but it is so profound and it is so well uh, descriptive of our situation. He says, We have lost the reality of God's wrath. We have disregarded his hatred for sin. The God most evangelicals now describe is all-loving and not at all angry. We have forgotten that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of God, a quote of the text that we are looking at today. Dr. MacArthur continues, we do not believe in that kind of God anymore. We must recapture some of the holy terror that comes with a right understanding of God's righteous anger. We need to remember that God's wrath does burn against impenitent sinners, that reality That reality is the very thing that makes his love so wonderful. We must therefore proclaim these truths with the same sense of conviction and fervency we employ when we declare the love of God. It is only against the backdrop of divine wrath that the full significance of God's love can be truly understood. That is precisely the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. And he says this very profound statement. After all, it was on the cross that God's love and his wrath converged in all their majestic fullness. Only those who see themselves as sinners in the hands of an angry God can fully appreciate the magnitude and the wonder of his love. 
In this regard, our generation is surely at a greater disadvantage than any previous age. We have been force-fed the doctrines of self-esteem for so long that most people don't really view themselves as sinners worthy of divine wrath. On top of that, religious liberalism, humanism, evangelical compromise, and ignorance of the scriptures have all worked against a right understanding of who God is. Ironically, he goes on, in an age that conceives of God as wholly loving, altogether devoid of wrath, most people are tragically ill-equipped to understand what God's love is really all about. The simple fact is that we cannot appreciate God's love until we have learned to fear him. We cannot know his love apart from some knowledge of his wrath. We cannot study the kindness of God without also encountering his severity. And if the church of our generations does not regain a healthy balance soon, the rich biblical truth of divine love is likely to be obscured behind what is essentially a liberal, humanistic concept. I think MacArthur has his hand on the pulse of our day. These last verses of Hebrews 10 teach us that the prospect of falling into the just hands of God is worthy motivation for persevering in the faith. It's not the only motivation. It's probably not even the dominant motivation. But it is motivation, biblical motivation nonetheless, to continue to trust Christ. If you know how bad off you are in your sin is before a holy God and what he must do to preserve his holiness and his justice in punishing sin, you all the, all the harder cling to Christ. So this is a just biblical motivation for persevering in the faith. Let's look at the text together and then note some, of, some thematic uh, points that are expressed. First, look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, I would refer you to a, a, a longer, deeper treatment of the issue of apostasy in the sermon I did on Hebrews chapter 6. It's both online and you can get it by calling the church office. Really, some of the themes here are identical. But remember the context here is the corporate community of faith. God's corporately elect. That is, he calls out a group of people to be his church. Now, the corporate election concept, that, like he did with Israel in the Old Testament, does with the church today, the church in the New Testament, uh, post-New Testament era, this is a corporate elect body. You all are part of the corporately elect. It doesn't mean that you're individually elect. It just simply means that he has called the church to himself. And that's the context or the backdrop of these statements. The covenant community, the corporately elect body. Where God brings forth his individually elect is through the church, this corporate body that we are all part of. So it says to us, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. We'll get into this aspect of sinning deliberately more in a moment. But it simply is saying now that if we choose, despite knowing better, to continue on in our sin, we are making a statement. Continual sin, deliberate sin, willful sin, despite what you know, is de facto apostasy. It's saying, I know what's true, I don't care, I'm going to keep doing what I'm going to do. De facto, that's apostasy. That's what it is. It's departing, knowing better. Look at verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is the lot of the one who goes on sinning deliberately, hiding in the pale of the church, yet truthfully not believing. A fearful expectation of judgment awaits. The full fury of fire that consumes the adversaries. So that 
that judgment that we think of as only relating to the outright enemies of God, that is those pagan nations that scoff our God, or those pagan individuals who scoff at God and Christ. There is a judgment that awaits them. But make no mistake, the person who hides in the church is still susceptible if they even know hiding under membership still are really in their hearts saying they don't believe any of it. That judgment is still going to fall upon them swiftly and harshly. Verse 28 and verse 29. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is referring to uh, the severity of judgment for one who, who publicly confessed and professed that Moses' law was wrong. Uh, this did not happen often, by the way. It's referring to the one who says, I know what the Ten Commandments are, or other, some other aspect of the law of Moses, and I think it's false. It's wrong. Two or three people were to confirm that that's really what they're saying, and if they did, they were dealt with harshly because it was a statement against the holiness of God that would not be tolerated. If that's the case, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? There's some heavy words here. How much worse if you reject Christ while being in the midst of his body? Now, what does it mean that one is sanctified by the blood of the covenant? Does this mean this person is actually a believer? No. What this is saying again is that they have been set apart as part of the body of believers. What just happened this morning when baptism was applied to Luke Oaks was that he was set apart, placed in the body of Christ, sanctified in that sense. The author of Hebrews uses the word sanctified in multiple ways. It's not referring to one who has been justified and then being sanctified, the individually elect person. It's talking about the corporate sanctification that happens. The church are the called out ones. They're separated from the world. And one who takes up membership in the church, perhaps is baptized in the church, is now part of the church. They're sanctified in that they're set apart as part of God's corporate community. For that person who has been baptized, who is in the corporate community, to spurn the Son of God, profanes the blood of the covenant which he was sanctified by. That is, we receive special blessings by being set apart. You know, someone could be in our midst and look the part and actually receive some level of grace by being in the covenant community. Maybe when they fall on hard times, the covenant community lifts them up. Uh, whatever common grace might happen happens all the more in the church setting with the people of God. And a person can be an unbeliever and still experience, can even taste to some degree the heavenly gift but not actually ingest it. Can live under the blessings that come down on the community of faith, but all the while are spurning the Son of God. Look at verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 32. In reminding us that this text declares that God's the only just owner of vengeance. That is, all sin is ultimately sin against God in his glory. Thus, only God has the right to exact vengeance. He, brothers and sisters, will repay every bit of sin. There's not one bit of sin that ever happens in this universe that God does not repay. Not one bit. The question for me and for you is, how will your sin be paid for? Because it will be paid for. God's wrath will be poured out on it. The question is whether Christ has taken that or whether you will bear it. To me, humanly speaking, that seems like a simple choice. Christ, by going to the cross, diverts 
God's wrath from you that is justly deserved to himself. Thus God's justice is upheld. He's poured out his wrath on sin, but he's poured it out on his son instead of us. That's the essence of the gospel message. I don't see how you can understand and appreciate grace if you don't understand justice and severity. God can't just let people into heaven because he's just a nice God. He's a just God. That can't be violated. And so therefore, he has made a way, not because we deserve for him to make a way, but he is in his grace to bring glory to himself and what glory it is to save people who don't deserve it and then to pour out his wrath, his just wrath, on his son instead of them. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. Again, his people. He's speaking to the corporate community here. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To fall into the hands of the living God without Christ. That is the most fearful of all things. That's what this text is saying. The passage goes on in verse 32. Recall the former days. After giving them this good dose of healthy biblical fear, it says, recall the former days when you were enlightened. That is when they initially came into knowledge and understanding of who Christ was and is. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those, those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They had an active living faith. They were a community that did not care what happened to them physically, did not care that they were disowned, that they had their own property plundered, because ultimately they knew eternity was secure because of what Christ, the sufficient superior one, had done for them. This gave them great strength to stand up. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. In verse 37, for yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. This is Habakkuk 2. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. A reference to Messiah to come, and also to those who are united to Messiah. How do we know who's united to Messiah? They won't shrink back. They'll persevere in the faith. Let me be clear, there is not one elect person who will ever, ever lose their salvation. Not one. But you only know if they're elect, if you're elect, if you persevere in faith, that is trust in Christ. You cannot separate perseverance from election. Let's consider this text more thematically for a moment. First, there's a theme that is addressed here that is so important, brothers and sisters, I have to say it again and again to myself, let alone to you, my beloved. The necessity of perseverance in Christ. If there's one message that could go forth, it would be grace in Christ, and coupled with that is perseverance and trusting in him. Hebrews is loaded with grace. Specifically, the grace of God in Christ, our sufficient superior Savior. Hebrews is loaded with warnings. Consider the warnings we have heard already. Hebrews 2, the warning against drifting. Hebrews 3, the warning against departing. Hebrews 4, the warning against disobedience. Hebrews 5, the warning against dullness. Hebrews 6, the warning against breaking covenant. And now today, the warning against willful sin. All these warnings, but interwoven between all of it is the constant grace of God given to us in the sacrifice Christ, who's the author and finisher of our faith. Salvation is all about grace. The process of spiritual maturity is all about grace. The proper response of the one truly saved is to persevere then in the faith. Christ is the sufficient and superior one. It is absolutely necessary that every professing believer, every member of the church, persevere in the faith. That is trust in Christ.
And let me just even be more blunt and plain with you because I think it's my duty as you are here in this audience. If your trust right now is in anything other than Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, you are in peril, great peril. Your trust cannot be in your family. Your trust cannot be in your church membership as such. Your, church can, your member, uh, trust cannot be in church membership, attendance, some saint, the pope, your intelligence, your money or things, something that you did, whether it be signing a card, raising your hand, coming forward in a public assembly, maybe burning all your rock and roll CDs at a youth gathering some time ago. Your trust cannot be in professional or athletic accomplishments. Your trust cannot be in a decision you made in the past to receive Jesus. Your trust cannot be in your rededication or recommitment made some years after you initially received Jesus. Your trust, your perseverance must be in Christ now. That's salvation. I'm not saying it doesn't matter what happened in the past. But what happened in the past is only authenticated by what's going on now in your heart. Do you trust Jesus now? That's the question. Not I came forward seven years ago, or I was baptized in the church, or I'm a member of thus and so, or my family is, or my dad is. That's not what saves you. It's perseverance in Christ now. That's the gospel message. I ask my children constantly, not do you want to pray to receive Jesus, but do you trust Christ? Trust him. He is trustworthy. That's an everyday thing. This is not once, and I look back and remind him about, remember that time I prayed? No, what do you think now? And I ask myself that every day. Do I trust Christ? Verse 32, but recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. There's a perseverance that is given to us by God as he authenticates the faith he's given us by the circumstances he brings into our lives. For these believers, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, I often feel so soft when I think of what I call a trial compared to what a real trial is, especially to those who have gone before me. But nevertheless, my perception is my reality. And how is it that I bear up under those things? How is it that I see God building me, changing me, honing me, taking out the dross, making me to persevere. So please don't hear me to say, you have to persevere. I'm just saying that perseverance will happen because it's God's work in you. The necessity of perseverance. Persevere, brothers and sisters. But know that the perseverance is actually God's grace at work also. Also, another theme that I think is worth mentioning, the very real matter of apostasy attempt to answer more specifically who is an apostate in a moment. But for now, please note the sober reality given to us in this text. There will be members of the church who seem to be genuinely part of the community and then depart. We're talking about baptized, Sunday school attending, communion taking, home fellowship group participating, tithing people who are recognized members of the church who are in fact not really partakers of Christ. And this is actually by God's divine design that the church would be this way. If you would look at the history of the church, some of the best times in the church's life were when they had to answer error. Although there were difficult times when when heresy would arise, the church would have to get together, determine what does God's word really say, make a declarative statement, and deal in discipline with the situation. That still happens on a microcosm level with faithful churches. There will always be an admixture of belief and unbelief in our midst. That's not a mistake. That's part of how God actually hones his people. It's a real matter of apostasy. 
And it helps us to not just rest back in our laurels or not just assume that everybody, just because we're here this morning, doesn't need to hear the gospel message again every day. I think we need to hear it constantly. I don't think the gospel message is just an initiation. I think it's the food we feed off of all the time as believers. The matter of apostasy is real and it happens and I can guarantee you that every one of you knows someone who you were sure, were sure were saved, more so than you. If they, were, if they weren't, there's no way you could be and you know they've departed now. They've renounced Christ. We can't see the heart and we can't identify exactly who's apostate but you know that someone who was once walking at least outwardly like you are is now gone, is departed. It's a real matter. And the scripture pulls no punches, says it straight up, they're part of us, but now they went out from us. They went out from us because they were not really among us. Also, another theme that's so important, the justice, of, the justice and, and glory of God. I would put these together rather than have them separated. And it doesn't speak specifically about the glory of God, but you recognize why the justice of God is so plain. It's because he must zealously protect his glory. So his justice serves that end. Verse 28, if anyone set aside the law of Moses, he dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? God vigorously, zealously, passionately defends his justice. And you may think, wow, that's harsh. But do you realize that if God does not remain completely consistent, that he is no God that can save us? So his zealousness for his own glory, his zealousness for his justice is the very security you have in Christ because he will not lie and he will not change like you and I do, almost on a minute-to-minute basis. Have you ever known someone who was a leader and you got close to the leader and you found out they had some warts? If you hang out with me a little while, you might think that. Maybe you already think that, but you might get closer and think, and you know what, it might make you feel a little good. You know what, I thought they were really great, but they're not really that great. There's that little something about them. It kind of makes you feel more... You know, bringing them down a little makes you feel a little, little better. You hear something about someone, everyone's just praising someone, and you hear how they fall in a way. And your human sinfulness kind of likes that a little because it makes them more human. Well, praise God that no one will find any kind of scandal in the life of Jesus or in God the Father because there is no such inconsistency. And so we can trust him fully, and his consistency is manifested and lived out by his zealous pursuit of his justice. Praise God for this. That's what makes grace possible. His kindness and his severity, his complete consistency in utter trustworthiness. When he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, he can say it and mean it because he's proven it over and over again, unlike any of us have ever been able to do ourselves. The justice and glory of God. God will not ultimately tolerate the mockery of his enemies against him. The pagan nations or those who spit at him with unbelief will eventually be trampled underfoot, But soberly, have you ever thought of this? Well, I don't know if there's levels to hell. Who do you think gets more wrath, Judas or that pagan king of Canaanite? I wonder about that. The one who hid himself in the midst of the church and the one who was always and ever an enemy of God. The justice and glory of God. And it's a sober, sober thing. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. I would like to then consider a few applications of this sober doctrine, the fear of God, his judgment. I would ask you, and I would ask myself always, including myself in with this, 
Are you taking God seriously? Do you have a healthy biblical fear of God? I don't mean are you scared of God. You should not be as a believer. But are you biblically and healthily fearful of God? Do you appreciate both the kindness and the severity of God? Simply put, our worship ought to reflect a serious view of God. I'm not trying to lay out the biblical framework because I don't have it. But I know that it ought to be serious, and I think we know the difference between what is serious and what is taken in a lighthearted, disrespectful way. This should be true of us corporately as a church, as families that gather for worship, and as individuals who spend time with the Lord. Be serious about God. He is serious. We ought to take him that way. Is there no thought of God's gaze upon you during the day? When you decide to click onto that internet site, do you not know that God is gazing upon you? Do you not take him seriously? When you're in that hotel room and deciding what movie you want to see, do you not know that God's gaze is upon you? Do you take him seriously as a child of God or do you presume upon his grace? When your neighbor calls you and wants to gossip about the rest of the neighborhood or a church person calls you and wants to gossip about someone in the church, do you see the gaze of God upon you at that time? Do you take that seriously when you speak to your wife or you speak to your, your husband in a way that is not becoming to the Lord or you speak to your mom or your, to your dad in a way that is not becoming to him? Do you see the gaze of Almighty God upon you or do you just blow it off? Are you taking God seriously? Am I taking God seriously? I think sometimes we fear fellow men so much because we don't fear God nearly enough. Viewing God in a balanced, biblical way will promote obedience, ultimately. And this is a biblical, healthy thing when taken in its proper perspective and balance. Another good question one might ask is, who then is apostate? Well, as it has been said pastorally and well, we are not here dealing with the believer who is depressed about his spiritual failure and has temporarily lost interest in the things of God. That's a struggling Romans 7 fellow brother or sister in Christ. That's not who an apostate is. And you may be personally dealing with some sin that you can't break. You know it's a sin. You acknowledge it's a sin. You're asking God to give you, uh, give you freedom from it. And there's things that you need to do to get out of that. That's not an apostate. That's a fellow brother or sister struggling in their sin. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's an apostate. That's one who, according to the Greek present participle, goes on regularly and habitually. Not just a one-time act of sin or an occasional falling into that sin or a wrestling with a common sin. It's a giving oneself over to a habit that is progressive and continual. It's the state of sin as opposed to the act of sin. I'm not saying the act of sin is a good situation. And if you're a brother, sister in Christ, a child of God, being in the act of sin will be miserable for you because your father loves you. But the state of sin is altogether different. It's saying, this is who I am and I don't care. Now, they won't say that out loud because it doesn't go over well in the body of believers. But that's essentially the heart. Do you struggle with sin? Do you acknowledge sin? Do you trust the righteousness of Christ to cover and remove your sin? If you say yes to these questions, you are not an apostate. You are struggling. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And what this means is that there is an evidence there that one has not acknowledged their own sin, their struggle, and Christ's sufficiency. And so therefore there is no forgiveness for the one who is not trusting and the only one who can divert God's wrath. I would ask you this question. 
What motivates you to persevere in Christ? I hope that the vast majority of what you hear dwells on the grace of God. But I hope you also recognize that you can't fully understand the grace of God if you do not, do not grasp the justice and holiness and glory and severity of God. Piper said it well when he said, we believe that the only good motivation comes from hearing about grace, not judgment. And little by little, we let that motivational conviction, as unbiblical as it is, he says, creep into our view of God himself until we have no categories anymore to understand, let alone love, a God whose wrath is a a fury of fire against sinners. But the writer of this book of Hebrews, Piper says, will not be silent about the wrath of God. Grace cannot be fully appreciated until we understand the obligation God is under to protect his glory. And you know what? This is a good motivation when taken in balance. I think not too long ago, we went to a wedding and there was a man who uh, was paralyzed from the neck down. He had an injury uh, that had caused this. And I remember my children just being just speechless as to what had happened that made him so he could not walk anymore. And he, even in the course of the time we were to, uh, at the dinner, they had to stand him up to keep sure that his, his blood flow would be right and all the things that go into taking care of someone who has that problem. And it came to us that he had an injury, I think it was a football injury that caused it. But since then, I have said to my children, when they do things that are not wise with regard to jumping off couches and doing flips and different things that you might see three little boys do, I say to them, do you understand that if you break your neck, that you could be in a wheelchair like that for the rest of your life? I'm not saying don't have fun, kids, but I'm saying there's some things that are done that we use a fear motivation that is wise. Don't run out in the street because it will smash your body and kill you, and you don't come back from being dead. None of us would think that would be an unreasonable way to be motivated. It's not the only way I motivate. I hope that they listen to me because daddy's a good daddy. And yeah, he said it. It doesn't matter why. It's just going to listen. But realistically, that isn't always what works. It's because I love him that I'll tell him the truth about it. You'll die if you go running out in that street. And it's because God loves us that he tells us to persevere. Persevere in the faith. Be careful. Be careful about a road that you may be heading down. What is your connection to God's church is a question. You say, well, where is that in this? Remember, the whole context is the corporate community. Forsaking not the assembling together with one another. Why is this important? Remember that safety, encouragement, security, assurance, conviction, accountability, strengthening, edification, grace, help in times of trouble, those all come from our union with other believers. To distance oneself from God's ordained community puts yourself in acute danger. John Calvin said it well of the church. The communion of the church was not instituted to be a chain to bind us in idolatry and piety, ignorance of God, and other kinds of evil, but rather to retain us in the fear of God and obedience of the truth. I cannot say enough about the importance of our connection to one another in our perseverance. You know, what I have said so far to some degree may be impersonal. It might seem a little bit uh, sometimes, I, and I pray that it does not seem as a pot shot at others sometimes when I talk about the modern evangelical church, because the fact of the matter is we are part of the modern evangelical church. So please, if you know me long enough, you recognize my critical uh, take on that is of, of myself and of us as a church, not just other churches. But I want to speak personally to this matter of the fear of God and how it has affected me in motivation, and my coming to Christ. We have all different ways you could probably describe why you came to Christ when you heard the gospel message or those of you who are uh, fortunate and blessed enough to grow up not knowing a day that you uh, did not trust Christ. Uh, For me, there was not a day that I did not know that I did not feel the wrath of God on me. 
Uh, my mom will attest to you that I had this kind of uh, air of almost depression about me, even as a youngster, recognizing my own sinfulness. And no matter how many people would tell me, wherever I was at whatever church it would be, how I was all right, and you're really okay, Tony, and you're really a nice guy, I knew it wasn't true. And it wasn't some kind of clinical depression or whatever they call it today. It was a reality that I understood something was really messed up, that God could not accept me the way I was. I fully understood he was holy. I'm talking 11 or 12 is how old I was when I was clearly grasping this. And I'll never forget when someone finally told me or said clearly that this is the state of man, sin, and God must judge it, and the only way to escape it is Christ. That's all I needed to hear, and I ran to him. It wasn't necessarily the love of God first. It wasn't necessarily the sovereignty of God. It wasn't necessarily something about the church or the way the church loved me or the unity of the church of all the different ways that you may come to Christ is I was scared to death that I would go to hell if I died. And I praise God for that. Because now I cling so tightly to Christ and I'm so acutely aware of all he saved me from that it keeps me persevering in that faith. When I have these moments of thinking better of myself than that, I am reminded that if anything good has come out of this sinful person, it's only because Christ in me, the hope of glory, is working something against my will, not in accordance with it, a return to such a focus, or at least to a more balanced biblical view of God, will surely ignite a modern reformation, a new great awakening. A dose of healthy fear, biblical fear, is what we need. The fear of animals, broken relationships, heights, airplanes, our boss, our neighbor, all these things ought to pale in comparison to the fear that should grip us if we were to fall into the hands of the living God without Christ. Perhaps we fear so many other things, again, because we don't fear God enough. And I would only say this in closing, that if our church, if the American church today if we're married to the spirit of the age today, we will be a widow in the next. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that we would return in our own souls to a balanced understanding of your goodness and your severity. And Lord, all of this drives us to Christ. And it's all of you. I pray that this renewal in our own minds and hearts would have its manifestation in our lives and then it would have a manifestation in the greater community you've placed us in, and it would have this ripple effect of holiness. Lord, we confess the church seems to be growing in numbers, yet we look at our culture and we see its sickness and its bankruptcy. Lord, this is not the fault of unbelievers. This is the church. You've called us out. Help us to be the called out ones and use us to see a modern reformation a modern great awakening. May this be so in our day that we would see this and enjoy this. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.